Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast that checks in every week with the people at the centre of the debates about where Canadian policy should be headed, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We speak with the thinkers, doers and deciders about how good policy can make for a better Canada. We'll be putting out a new episode every Thursday, so please join us weekly if you're up for a deep dive into the policy choices in front of us and the trade-offs involved. And tell your friends they can subscribe wherever they normally get their podcasts. You can listen to back episodes of Policy Speaking and learn more about the Public Policy Forum and our research projects at ppforum.ca or on the Twitter handle ppforumca. Here's the host of Policy Speaking, Edward Greenspawn, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of the Globe and Mail. Welcome to episode 35 of Policy Speaking, the final episode of this calendar year. We spent much of the last 34 episodes talking about various waves of the COVID-19 tsunami, but we haven't yet touched on an issue impacting millions of Canadians in one way or another, the mental health impacts of COVID-19. A survey conducted by the Mental Health Commission of Canada in partnership with the Conference Board of Canada demonstrated that the vast majority of Canadians reported their mental health concerns had worsened since the onset of the pandemic. Among the biggest concerns were well-being and family wellness, their personal future, isolation and loneliness, and anxiety or fear. I think we can all relate to that. As we head into month 10 and a highly isolated holiday season, it is more important than ever to have frank conversations about mental health in your homes, in your workplaces, in your schools. Don't allow yourself or a colleague, friend, relative to become any more isolated than necessary. And please don't succumb to the perceived stigma. If you are suffering, reach out, you will be loved. To have our own frank discussion today, I'm joined by Paula Allen, Global Leader of Research and Total Wellbeing at Morneau Chappelle, a well-known human resources services firm. Paula focuses on the current emerging and complex issues that have the greatest impact on workplace health, health cost, and productivity. Also with us is Ed Mantler, the Vice President of Programs and Priorities at the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Ed is dedicated to promoting mental health and changing the attitudes of Canadians toward mental health problems and illnesses, and he is a registered psychiatric nurse. So welcome to you both, to Policy Speaking. Thank you, Ed. Great to be here. Okay, well, we're going to talk in a moment about the mental health of the nation, I guess, uh, in this pandemic. But first, let me just ask you how you're doing, and I don't know if you have coping mechanisms to be doing well. Paula, why don't I start with you? It's a big question, and one I think everybody should be asking every, everyone else, because this has sort of been a, a major disruption in everyone's life, and certainly I'm no, no, no different. For me, it's really been a chance to reflect on the things that I need. Like I need variety in my activity each day. I need a lot of contact with my family. I've, I've started to appreciate like, the small things like being able to have lunch together because everybody is working from home. Um, and also uh, appreciate the things more that I had missed. Like when this is done, first thing I'm going to do is go to the go to a movie. I, 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 I need to get out of the, the movie and the house piece. So it's, it's been a, a pretty reflective time and a, and a time that I'm spending a lot of a lot of time thinking about what I, I need and what goes around me. 
Yeah, so we'll ditch Netflix for a few minutes and go back to uh, uh, sing people in a theater. Ed, how about you? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks, Ed. And what a great question to start with because it's a lesson to all of us about supporting one another. I mean, it, it's it's so easy to uh, to just ask everyone we come in contact with, how are you doing? And it's a great way to open up what can be a helpful conversation, but also it feels good that someone uh, cares about how you're doing. I, at the beginning, I really didn't think I was a work from home person. And I've discovered that I can be quite productive. Uh, so, so in that way, I'm doing great. At first, um, I, you know, in March and April, I was really liking the blend of home life and work life. And, you know, it's great to just jump up between meetings and throw in a load of laundry. But I quickly <laughs> discovered that that blended into work life taking up virtually all of the time, despite being at home. And so, you know, I learned quickly that that maintaining some kind of routine was really important for me. So I, you know, I get up at the same time I normally would, I get dressed, no pajama pants for me. I, I have a defined start time and a relatively defined finish time for my work day so that I can create some work-life balance. And that seems to be working really well for me. It, it takes vigilance. Um, just last week, I made the mistake of deciding to check some email in the evening. And when I came up for air at 10 o'clock, I was shocked to my core to see my dinner was still sitting in the kitchen untouched. I'd prepared it and just forgot to go back and eat. So right. maintaining that routine is my, my uh, guideline for maintaining some mental health. Okay, well, you need a little bit more discipline on that, apparently. I don't want to apparently. be judging you, but based on your words, I, I think the pajama bottoms test is a, is a very interesting one. One of the good things about a podcast, of course, is you don't have to verify that. So <laughs> we're, we're in good shape here. What kind of landscape were we uh, seeing uh, mental health-wise uh, before COVID-19 hit? Why don't I just start with you, Ed? Let's lay down a kind of a base before we then move into what COVID-19 has done. Sure, and your some of your opening comments really hit the nail on the head. I think um, we were we were starting with fairly strong mental health across the country. 2019 polls indicating about two thirds, or a little more than two thirds, of Canadians reporting their mental health to be excellent or very good, um, and uh, and doing well. Now that within though a bit of a perfect storm of a system that that perhaps wasn't ready for what was about to come. I mean, we know that the mental health system itself had already been underfunded, that while mental health was prominent in policy discussions, there were many competing priorities and, and uh, we, we didn't always necessarily have a sharp focus. So we were in a situation where the, the system itself was perhaps not ready for the upcoming rapid shift in how services are delivered and in the needs of Canadians. Okay, well, let's make sure we come back exactly to that in, in a second, because that's interesting and important. But let me just ask, Paula, from, you know, from your perspective and the insights you have into people's workplaces, I guess, uh, they're, they're, them as individuals through the workplace, what were you saying when this hit? Number one, when it hit, we were shocked at how quickly there was a mental health impact. So we have that from a couple of different sources. We have a, a mental health index, and we've been collecting data for the past three years. So we have, you know, a good, you know, pre-COVID benchmark. 
And we, we measured uh, a number of key indicators around anxiety, depression, isolation, optimism, a few other things, and had a massive decline. Like how quickly when you say uh, right away, how quickly? We, in um, April. So most of this lockdown in uh, most of the, most, most, even though we had been talking about COVID-19 and the pandemic since December, January, February, people's lives were really disrupted around mid-March. And we started the poll towards the end of March, beginning of April. And that's when we actually saw that, saw that decline. So, you know, just to give you a, a, a sense, we looked at the working population only in, in our particular poll. And if you look at the risk level at that point in time, it was similar to the risk level of the most distressed 1% of the population prior to 2020. So at that point in time, you know, people were experiencing a huge impact in terms of their mental health and well-being. Now, of course, not everybody is going to stay in that place, but we've been taking this measure each and every month since. Like, you, know, we, you can't manage what you can't measure, so we have to understand what's going on. And even though there's been some ups and downs, we're really still finding that the population is at high risk. As a matter of fact, when we look specifically at those people at highest risk, it's more than double. The level of burnout has tripled. You know, we, we, we definitely need to pay attention to what's happening in terms of our population pretty much immediately. That's an extraordinary number. Uh, I don't think I can let it go by. Ed told us that, you know, at the beginning, about 67% of people were saying, uh, about two-thirds of people were saying that their mental health was pretty good. Uh, you're saying immediately... After the pandemic hit, yeah. Yeah, that people went, the working population went down to the most distressed 1%. Yeah. Well, you can look at it as if um, there's a, a curve in terms of people who are high risk, moderate risk, and lower risk. And that curve has moved. So the population overall, based on our measure, is more towards the high risk. So few pe fewer people in lower risk, fewer people in moderate risk, and moving much more similar to that more distressed 1%. I'm going to come back to Ed in one second, but let me just ask one more question on this immediately. So what does 1% um, look like? What are the pathologies of the most distressed 1%? So in terms of our specific people feeling anxious more often than not during a day, people feeling a sense of helplessness in terms of, you know, what they're doing with their, what they're able to do with their life and education of depression and loss of motivation and loss of optimism, feelings of isolation. So those are the things you others should be looked at. Yeah, maybe if I could just jump in here and comment, because uh, what you're saying is is uh, very interesting, and it it rings true in um, other surveillance that we've done. Following, in fact, by October, we saw that only about uh, only less than half of Canadians were reporting themselves being feeling strong mental health. So this is impacting people who were otherwise yeah. um, well. So, that, so, so this has gone from about two-thirds to about half, is that right? From about two-thirds two -thirds to, half. To, to under half, less than half. Now, now um, how one defines their mental health when they're responding to the surveys plays a role because, you know, many people are experiencing feelings that are completely normal within the circumstances. If you're, you know, if there's a, a virus that can get you by touching your neighbor and you're, you feel afraid, that's perfectly normal. If you feel lonely or isolated when you are locked in your home, that's perfectly normal. The, 
the challenge though becomes that as Canadians, many of us have not had to cope with or deal with these normal reactions, normal emotions for an extended period of time. So the, the you know, we just don't have necessarily the skills or the experience in how to cope. And that's where the, the, the impact becomes cumulative and can turn into more serious mental health problems and illnesses even. Those who were already at risk, though, are facing the biggest impacts. People who were already at risk because of lower income, uh, already at risk because they were uh, facing racism, facing other challenges in terms of social determinants of health, healthcare workers who were already 1.5 times more likely than the general population to be off work for mental health problems. Um, you can imagine the impacts that it's having on on their daily stress and mental health. I can add, I can add to that as, as well. I mean, uh, just as another sort of data point, just talking about the people who are at higher risk. So think about it as this. Pandemic has moved everybody to a higher level of risk. So if you're already at high risk, then it, this is often the tipping point. We've seen a 30% increase in suicidal calls in our, in our EAP. Domestic violence, you've seen, we've seen that through public sources as well. So this has made this a much more difficult time to you know, exist for people who are at higher, higher risk. But the other, other groups, the rest of the population, as Ed said, people who weren't at risk before or had moderate risk, you know, that's another group that we have, have to look at because that has increased as well. So I mentioned before, you know, the increase in um, feelings of, of burnout. We're seeing people not be able to cope as well with, with their work as a, as a result of just emotional exhaustion. We're seeing parents as well at a higher risk than non-parents. And, and actually that reverberates because risk of a parent will increase the risk of, of the child as well. And parents just to stay on that point are very concerned around the mental health of their children. So, I mean, the reason why we're so, this is probably, what is it? Your first or second question and Ed and I are just jumping all over you. Like this is such an important conversation that you're bringing forward. And I, I it really, it, it saddens me to hear about how it's spoken about sometimes because you hear things like, well, you know, mental health of, of Canadians is, is, is impacting. Well, of kind of, of course, like, you know, it's almost as if we're accepting it and we're not thinking of what, what we need to do about it. Or we're saying that this is a, something that's going to be temporary, but the pain people are going through is real, even if it is temporary. And as anybody who understands mental health knows, how you know if you're going through this chronic period of stress it's not most people will get through okay but it's not guaranteed it's not a hundred percent we will see implications after this pandemic is over if we don't take action now okay so i'm going to come back we're going to save action now for a bit later because there's a whole bunch of pieces of what you guys have said that i'd like to fill in a little bit for a couple minutes so ed you said that you know, we've had this extraordinary spike in need for uh, people who are who are suffering distress, anxiety, depression, the different ways that this might express itself. And you said we weren't ready. We weren't ready beforehand. The system wasn't ready. So what was missing in the system when this started? And have we played any kind of catch up during this? We have. So, the, so you know, we know that 
that uh, the proportion of healthcare funding that goes towards mental health in Canada is much lower than than uh, than some of our uh, some other Commonwealth countries. So we're at just over seven percent dedicated to mental health here in Canada. That's almost double in the UK, for instance. So the the resource base in which to work um, uh, was uh, was challenged to begin with. The realities of the pandemic required that many, if not most, mental health service provision in communities went virtual overnight. It's not just a matter of doing what you used to do as a therapist in your office and doing that over the screen. There's a there's a skill set. There's a preparation. There's, you know, having the competencies to provide uh, mental health services with the same level of effectiveness in a virtual environment that it took time and is taking time um, to ensure that, that we're able to give access uh, through the new virtual methodologies to services in a timely way that are effective and proven effective within this, uh, this environment. So, so, so despite the fact we've had the internet uh, since the 1960s and the World Wide Web since 1990, we hadn't really made a lot of uh, forward progress here, I guess. And uh, tell me if this is right, but as I understand it, even our management system wasn't prepared to pay um, therapists who were giving therapy over other means than, than being in person. So all of that had to change as well. Is that right? The, the payment strategies vary from province to province. Uh, so I can't speak to all of them, but I know that that in some areas there needed to be rapid change to regulations and even legislation to allow for, you know, telephone, text, email, and uh, video kind of supports. Paula, what are you seeing in terms of transformation? Are, are you seeing us doing fairly well or not well enough on catch up? Uh, catch up in terms of the support for mental health, you mean? Yeah. yeah. I, th I think I think we're doing reasonably well. I think I, I, I definitely agree with Ed that we weren't, you know, our, our, our public health infrastructure, our investment uh, in, in government on mental health really wasn't what it needed to be, and that would that would have been the case even prior to COVID, and COVID never never happened. Um, I think one of the the, the uh, bright spots is that it has accelerated. So virtual care is you know people are investing in it. I think there's another uh, component though, because when, when you are feeling drained, when you are feeling um, that you know, things are feeling out, out of control, when, you are, when you're not in a great place, you need support more than ever, but very often you don't have the energy to get that support, particularly if something feels different or if something feels new. Um, we're actually finding that 29% uh, of Canadians are less likely than they were in 2019 to seek physical health care support, even if they needed it, and 24 are less likely to seek mental health care support, even if they, they needed it. So I think the building the infrastructure is one thing, uh, but also I think we need to sort of look at the factors that will help people get to care. So one is just making it as easy for them as possible, to, you know, just marketing it in a very clear way so people feel comfortable that, that it is, it's, it's effective, which it is, it's secure, which it is. 
and, and, and having that as also um, a kind of an education of our population overall, because sometimes, again, you as an individual might not have the energy, but your spouse or your friend or your coworker can encourage you to take that first step if they have some of the words if they have some of the knowledge. So I do think that mental health is a collective responsibility and a, success, and a systemic issue. So the, just being able to deliver service digitally is one great component of it, but there's certainly a few others. It is a great component. And if there's a silver lining to, to COVID, one of the silver linings may be the acceleration of the availability of virtual mental health, because there, there are well-established uh, e-mental health platforms and services that are evidence-based and proven effective and work well. Uh, the fact that Health Canada has now made available uh, the Wellness Together portal for all of us uh, as an easy, easy, convenient way to access a whole range of mental health services is really fantastic. And, the, and COVID has really shone a light for all of us, I think, on the importance of mental health and well-being. Yeah. There was a story, you know, to your point, I guess, about uh, about the system and if the system's ready and, you know, systems are imperfect. That's one of the uh, characteristics of systems. You just want to make them less imperfect uh, as, as you go along. There was a story in, um, in La Presse yesterday about a mother and her 17-year-old son, and he's been suffering from mental health issues before all this happened, and they've gotten much worse. And it was just about their difficulty navigating the system, including, you know, being told at one point to take him to a, uh, a mental health hospital in Montreal on a Sunday evening and then being turned away from that hospital because they don't take anyone under 18 except Monday to Friday. So there he is in an emergency and they've driven a long way to get there and, and they're turned away from the hospital. I'm sure you know uh, lots of stories of this sort. How do we get the system to be more supple? Ed, I'll start with you. Sure, well, uh, you know, one of the side benefits is that the number of people relying on emergency departments to meet their mental health needs has, uh, has declined during the, the pandemic response. Virtual services are more available. People are relying more on, on other mechanisms like uh, distress lines, like peer support, so, you know, the, the ability to bolster up some of these alternatives to going into to the emergency department um, will really, I think, serve us well in the long run. Let's go back to the research that you both conducted. We had the first wave, and Paula was telling us at the beginning, you know, immediate drop. Then the summer, as far as COVID went, was a bit better, and then we've had a second wave in the fall that again has, you know, caused people to be more isolated, more social distancing, more shutdowns, et cetera, is what you're seeing in terms of spikes in, in mental health issues uh, following the basic COVID track line? I mean, have the, did, they, did they get a bit better and are they getting a bit worse? Well, some, some good news from that research, from those, uh, that surveillance research is that Canadians are resilient and about two-thirds of Canadians, about 80% of older adults and two-thirds overall are feeling confident in their ability to cope with COVID as, it, as it's ongoing. Part of that, I think, comes from the response of organizations like mine, the Mental Health Commission, um, and many other organizations have used the research to develop 
a lot of tools, tips, guidelines, fact sheets that are available free of charge through a number of resource hubs that are, are really giving people some, some pragmatic ways of addressing the stressors that they're facing, and that's helpful. Our lowest point in, in Canada was when we first uh, took that took the poll in, in April. Um, since then, we've seen a little bit of an improvement, really quite modest, and a bit of a bit of a, a wavy line. And getting a little bit deeper into that wavy line, not everybody is coping in the same way. Some people are coping better than others. And post-secondary students, generally speaking, are having one of the most difficult times. So their mental health has actually been decreasing over time. Those people who had employers who really invested in their mental health and well-being as part of their COVID response. So communications, destigmatizing mental health, uh, highlighting or even adding some resources, like really putting uh, mental health, you know, in, in at least as an equal issue alongside health and safety, those individuals are much more likely to be close to our 2019 benchmark, so not to have that, that huge decline. So, you know, who you are in this society and what is around you and support is really making a difference in terms of how you're coping through this. Okay, well, let's probe a little deeper into who you are, but just before I go there, you're, when's the last month that you've been able to uh, publish an index? Would that be October uh, or have you got November? When's your last uh, mental health index? And how did that compare to the summer? Is it getting better or is it uh, becoming exacerbated? Uh, the last publication is December the 9th. Yeah, it was pretty close to where we're, where we're going to be airing this. And we're just very marginally above where we were in, in April and quite a bit below where we were at our, at our best, which was in July. And then we had another best in, in September. So that's that wavy line that we're talking about. So if you look at it, like in, we, we had pretty steady improvement from April to July a bit of a dip in August and then went back to where we were in July. So July to September, you know, pretty good. And then we've actually declined since then, uh, October and November. Okay, so let's now break this down into subgroups. You both started doing that in some of your answers already. You know, we've seen that the impacts of COVID, both health-wise and economic-wise, have landed uh, unevenly by gender, by age, by income, by race, by a number of factors. So what are you seeing that's striking to you? We'll start with you, Ed, in mental health in terms of demographic groups, I suppose, racialized groups, age groups, um, gender, et cetera. There are, um, you know, certainly inequities that that COVID has shone the light on, and you've you've mentioned many of those age uh, socioeconomic status, anyone facing discrimination, whether it be race-based discrimination, LGBTQ2+, uh, there are specific cohorts of people that both the system and their, their circumstances are putting them at, at very high risk. We've all seen the impacts on long-term care and uh, perhaps a, another population at significant risk that's not as visible is those who are incarcerated within the criminal justice system. So, so places where there's a systematic congregate living situation are really putting people in, in challenging situations. 
Okay. In the workplace, uh, Paula, particularly, can you please weigh in on it by groups and subgroup as well, but, but also workplaces that are under stress themselves, employers who are under stress industries that, you know, do you see a greater incidence of, of stress occurring there? Yeah, for sure. So in, in, in industries that were unstable, like accommodation, food, uh, some, some parts of food service, some parts of food service are doing very, very well. So it's not homogeneous. You know, it, it really kind of correlates with what we found as one of the strongest drivers, which is financial uncertainty. So in, in people and how people feel that they are coping, uh, if they're in a situation where they have financial uncertainty, that was one of the strongest drivers. The second one was, was isolation. Uh, so we saw females more heavily impacted, younger workers more heavily impacted, for sure. Uh, we also saw a very interesting phenomenon, and this was, this was month after month after month, and this was also in Canada, UK, Australia, and the US, so it's four geographies where we published the Mental Health Index. We found that those who had reduced salary per hour but were still working, were actually uh, in more distress than people who had actually even lost their jobs. So people who had stable income, stable jobs were doing the best, as one might, might expect. But that kind of in-between place where you have that level of uncertainty, you don't have a clear break with your employer, you're not really sure about what's gonna happen. Like the human mind does not like uncertainty and limbo. And I think we're seeing some of that here, but it was a real wake up call and something that we communicated to employers that even in, if your actions were meant out of benevolence to you know, have everyone share the pain a bit, reduce salaries, which many employers have done, but you know, that minimize layoffs as a result, that has an impact on people's lives, how they see themselves, how they see their future, their level of anxiety. And it, it creates that collateral risk that needs to be managed. Like it's not, it's not the same as business as usual. That's very interesting. And, you know, to me, that would have been counterintuitive. Uh, when you uh, describe it, it, it actually makes sense. I mean, people stuck in a limbo, you know, they can't sort of move, figure out to move on or how to move on if they're, if they're stuck there. Yeah. That's, uh, that's quite interesting. Ed, you started moving into policy earlier, and we're talking on policy speaking, produced by the Public Policy Forum, so we're not adverse to having conversations about what needs to be done, what should the policy response be. You know, you've also talked about the relatively low spending in Canada compared to um, uh, like countries. What would you say are the two or three major priorities, not just for the COVID time period we're in, but, uh, but you know, carrying forward as well? Well, in the, in the small P policy realm, the biggest focus, uh, just as Paula has been discussing, is around workplaces. We have, we have many people whose work has been disrupted in that they're unable to go into their workplace, they're working from home or not working. But perhaps some of the biggest impact has been on those individuals who, due to the nature of their work, must keep working, must keep being face-to-face -face with the public and, and keep performing their duties. So those who we already knew were at risk, like healthcare workers, now at much higher risk and under higher levels of stress. Those who would perhaps not have considered themselves at risk before, uh, the, the staff in grocery stores, the people who deliver you know, your parcels that you're buying uh, merchandise online at a much higher risk than, than previously. So workplace policies, 
very, very impactful and have the potential to really make a difference. We're fortunate to be guided by the national standard on psychological health and safety in the workplace, which gives employers and workplaces some guidance on what those uh, policy decisions need to be within their organizations, how to support their employees. And we're, we're also fortunate to have a number of resources available, including training programs to help employees stay as resilient and mentally healthy as possible throughout these times. Over the summer, incidentally, at the commission, we trained about 5,000 frontline workers across various industries in a, a virtual training program, crisis response training program that was quickly developed in order to help them recognize the mental health impacts of the changes in their workplace and, and gain some skills to be resilient. Overall, the, the larger policy questions, I mean, our first, uh, our first question was really uh, early on around what is the impact of a pandemic likely to be on the mental health of Canadians and what kind of, of uh, uh, social and uh, economic policy changes might, might be impactful there. We've recognized that the, the impact, the mental health impact, is likely to, sh to show itself long after the physical crisis of the pandemic has ended and will be an enduring impact. We're working on, on uh, policy research papers, policy briefs on a number of issues that I think will be quite helpful in the, in the near future, looking specifically at the impact of COVID on the rates of suicide. That's an area that we know that the number of calls to distress centers regarding suicide have, have significantly increased and that uh, uh, people experiencing uh, racism and discrimination are the most highly represented in that increase. Policy briefs into uh, the impact of, of COVID and isolation on older Canadians, on uh, students and on people with already living with and experiencing severe and persistent mental illness. So these are all areas that will be impactful. Paula? Yeah, and I, just, I want to sort of build a, um, build some more off the, the workplace point. I mean, what, there's, there's many, there's a, many or a few, there's enough silver linings to say that there are silver linings in this, uh, in this, in this, in this pandemic. One we mentioned was uh, the acceleration of virtual care, but the other is that we really have clear evidence now of the power of the workplace. Like we've always seen that, we've known it academically, but has it ever been strong as a result of this? So as I've mentioned, those people who were in workplaces where they had support, where uh, mental health was destigmatized, where it was part of the conversation uh, from a senior leadership point of view and all employee calls. You know, we've had um, em employers uh, offer uh, services such as the AP to contract and part-time workers, you know, because it was the right thing to do and they understood the strain that they were on. Those individuals are doing better. And then if you look at the data, those employers who managed inconsistently, those, those, their employees are doing worse. Those employers who didn't do anything at all, it's not that they were bad employers, they just didn't take action. Those employees are doing the worst. It's almost a perfect cor correlation. So, so it's not just the right thing to do, it's a smart thing to do as well. It is the essential thing to do. 
Um, but what we find as well is that there, you know, some employers really need some help in this, like, you know, there's a, a great power in the workplace in terms of supporting health overall. Uh, but we found the, the, the highest risk area was actually in the employer group between 50 and 100 people. So, you know, you weren't small enough to have that co necessarily that cohesive cohesiveness that you would have maybe in a small employer. And very often that employer group wasn't large enough to feel that they had the resources to move forward. So I think from a policy point of view, we have to number one, understand and recognize the, the power of the workplace. We have to support the power of that, that workplace in, in, as, in many ways as, as possible. And we also, we have to look at the most vulnerable uh, in groups and the most vulnerable groups. We looked at different demographics, we looked at both, but there is a vulnerable group working in that, that small employer size that isn't so sm small to have that family atmosphere, but isn't large enough to necessarily be aware of what they can do. You're absolutely right, Paula. The, the, and employers are not on their own to figure this out. There's now a, a growing body of resources that have been developed or curated specifically around building mental health and well-being into a COVID response for employers. There's a, a great toolkit called a starter kit uh, for post-secondary institutions. Uh, as Paula had highlighted, that's a, a very high-risk group, and that's in support of a national standard on mental health and well-being of post-secondary students. So take advantage of the tools and resources that are out there. Um, they're, they're helpful. They're beneficial. Yeah, I have a couple of uh, short snappers here, and, and since you mentioned post-secondary, you know, I think we all worry about what we've seen on campuses over the last number of years, that there seems to be, uh, uh, you know, such a high incidence of, of mental health issues. What's better, or can you say what's better right now as a strategy for, uh, for students and parents of students? Is it to have your child at home? going to university or college uh, online, or is it to actually be out there, perhaps with a higher health risk, but in the company of, uh, of your peers? Uh, is there anything that, that shines any light on that question? I, yeah, it would be it would be lovely if it, I, if we could make it that simple. I think <laughs> I think I think at the, at the end of the day, um, People and particularly students do need social connection, and and it, you know prior to COVID, a lot of people, a lot of students were in you know very crowded environments and still had no connections. So it's not it's not a matter of you know are you there on campus and everything is going to be okay, or are you there on at home and everything's not going to be okay. It's a matter of just making sure that you do have a, a sense of support, which can be very effective. Digitally, I don't think it shuts shuts it off. It's not, you know, the, you, you, there there's certain things that you don't have, but you can have the core of meaningful relationships through that video. I think the other um, thing with students is that COVID has brought to us a level of uncertainty. There is financial uncertainty. There's, you know, there's broader economic uncertainty. The job market has certainly changed a, a fair bit. So it's really knocked students off balance in terms of what, what is my future going to look like? You know, should I be in the same field as I was before? Am I gonna find employment? Those who are graduating have, are having some difficult times right now. You know, that, that, that sense that there is a clear path is 
is is is shattered a, a bit because it is a pretty vulnerable time to begin with, and the last thing anybody needed was this this major economic up upheaval. So I think that there's some very unique and serious issues in that time of life. You know, isolation, uncertainty, all of which are exacerbated, and none of which I think are going to be easily fixed when everybody just goes back into uh, our regular mode because those were issues that we had before. Yeah, irrespective of the of where the studying is taking place, whether it's on campus or or virtually, those students have some some common wants and needs and I think they're common with people in in their workplaces as well they need need and want to feel connected somehow okay. they need and want um, to have information about what's happening within that organization and how it's impacting them they need to have a way to express their thoughts worries fears uh, happiness about that and and feel like someone's heard and they need to be protected both mentally and physically and so as, as organizations that are employing or that are teaching, it's important to keep these things in mind. Let's kind of circle around and end there because we're having this conversation. It's almost the middle of December. We're moving up on, on the holiday season for people. I think that's a, a time when people do try to reconnect. They reconnect with loved ones. They reconnect. Uh, they travel generally to get together with uh, with family. They want to uh, see kids come home from school. It won't be that way this year. It will be uh, quite a bit different. What proactively would you be suggesting to people now to try to maintain their balance as well as possible? I would say um, first and foremost, proactively, don't expect the holiday season to be the same as the traditional holiday season. Don't, you know, expectation management, don't expect to, to be able to replicate your normal, your usual activities in the same way. This is, you know, this is a season that tends to be kind of ripe with tradition. We often do the same things over and over and it, it can be um, tempting to think that we can keep up all of those traditions. Sometimes it's important to just say no, it's going to be different this year and plan something very, uh, very differently. It's important to keep in mind that the holiday season um, has always been a time of high stress for people. Um, there are a lot of mental health implications to the holidays, even in a, a regular year without COVID. And all of those, those stressors of trying to do it all and be everything uh, that we, we envision as ideal throughout the holidays are even exacerbated when we're doing it uh, virtually or doing it in a way that restricts our usual activities. So care for yourself, be willing to say no to the old way and yes to a new innovative way of celebrating and, and take the time for self-care look after one another. And I, I really couldn't agree more. I think there's some choices that we have. I mean, it might not feel great not to have our traditions, but when you think about it, you know, what is that giving you? Is, you know, is it the connection? Is it, you know, there's fun, there's activity. There's so many different ways that we can actually get that and create and take control to move forward to something new. And the one thing that I would add is that your mindset going into this holiday is going to be really important. We've, we've looked at the people who have this mindset in different ways. At one end of the continuum, those who have a mindset of gratitude, 
So, you know, perhaps this is a time to reflect on what's important to you to focus on the things that you really enjoy as in the holidays and get rid of some of the others. And even if you have to find another way to get that, you know, grateful for what you have, recognizing people around you, because that's the other point of uh, other side of the coin of gratitude is, is showing recognition and appreci appreciation, not just feeling it inside your, yourself. Those people did better. You know, their mental health actually has been improving, albeit modestly, over, over the pandemic. And those who had uh, a mindset of either anger or helplessness, those people, their, their mental health has been declining quite, quite significantly. So, you know, what I would hope is that going into this holiday that we do take but is in most cultures around this time of year is to focus on gratitude, to, to really focus on not just grieving the past, but creating something new and exciting and wonderful and awesome for the current state. And, you know, getting help if you need to, uh, from friends, family, from professionals, if you feel you're, the, you're going down that path of feeling helpless or anxious or angry, because that's going to harm you in the long term. Well, I, I, I'm grateful for both of you for being with us today, because you're obviously compassionate and well-informed on, on these issues, and, and they're important. And I've learned a lot, and I'm sure that our uh, listeners have learned a lot. I, I, I suppose one of the words that has gained great prominence this year is resiliency, and being more resilient individually, being more resilient as a, uh, as a society. And you know, a lot of what I hear is about, you know, building that resiliency as, as a way of having a happier life, I suppose, a better life, and of course, the duty that we uh, owe to those people who are struggling and who uh, have the resources and, and the programs in place, including our uh, front care health workers. So thank you both so much uh, for being on Policy Speaking, and let me uh, wish you happy holidays. Thank you. You as well. Take care. Now I have the policy speaking obscure question of the week for our listeners. We've asked JDM Stewart, history teacher extraordinaire and author of the 2018 book, Being Prime Minister, to challenge and distract us with something trivial in these days of everything being so monumental. You can respond on our PPF Twitter or Instagram accounts. And this week, one of our lucky respondents will be entered to win a copy of Being Prime Minister. Last week, we highlighted the 99th anniversary of Agnes McPhail's election to the House of Commons, the first woman to do so. On her first day in the House, something was placed on her House of Commons desk, a result of a lost bet. What was placed there on that day in 1922 when she finally took her seat in Ottawa? This was last week's question. And the answer is what was placed on her desk was a bouquet of roses. I don't know what to think about that. So I'm just gonna try not to think too much about that, but go to this week's question. We have covered a lot of terrain in our trivia moments with JDM Stewart, questions ranging on topics from health and sports to politics and communications. And for our final installment, JDM, who often goes by the name James, has decided to challenge us with a question about newsmakers of the 20th century. Some of us remember the 20th century. In 1999, the Canadian press presented a list of its newsmakers of the 20th century instead of its usual newsmaker of the year. 
As it turned out, Pierre Trudeau was named at the top of that list. But that's not our question today. Our question is, who was second on the 1999 Canadian Press list of newsmakers of the 20th century? Who was second? We're looking for your answers on our Instagram or Twitter accounts. And finally, at the end of our podcast, we'd like to take a moment to salute some of the above and beyond the call of duty efforts being made by PPF members and partners. This week, we want to say we are PPF proud of our member CIBC. Last week marks CIBC's annual Miracle Day, a proud tradition that has been helping to improve the lives of millions of children since 1984. CIBC partnered with their clients, celebrities, and partner charities through a virtual event to raise money for children so that kids worldwide can access vital support services and programs. Miracle Day funds contribute to organizations such as Holland Blurview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital, Camp Quality, Power to Be, Pinball Clemens Foundation, and Heroes Hockey. Great causes all. So that is a wrap on this edition and this season of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter, at PP Forum CA, and be the first to know about season three. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends. You can give a free podcast as a Christmas gift. They make great, great holiday presents. Until next year, I'm Edward Greenspan, and this has been Policy Speaking.